Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 10? And then go back one chapter to Matthew 9. <laughs> Matthew 9, verse 35, the very end of chapter 9. Janet and Dwight and Juliana. Juliana might be in, in uh, or you're right here. Good. Where's Dwight? The three of you are going to be marked in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus told you to be marked through baptism. If you have not been marked by that same way, having confessed Him as Lord and Savior and believed that He died and rose for you, your sins and for your justification and you've repented of your sins and want to follow him, you should be baptized and we would love to talk to you about that. And so I invite you to that. Talk to us. Would you talk to me or one of the leaders here at the church? And we'd love to talk you through that and then hopefully baptize you in the coming weeks or months. God creates through his living word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was that Word, but you go back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created through His Word. God creates spiritual life through His Word. He creates physical life through His Word. And today, I believe, and I just ask you, as I say a short prayer in asking God to now take this Word and bring it life to us, Ask that God would shape us as a people. He would bring life. He would make us and fashion us to be the people he intends for us to be. Father, as Jay just prayed, I agree with his petition to you. And I pray that now you would be our vision. Your son would be our vision, our heart's desire our treasure, our light, our life, our hope. Our... And God, I pray that by your mercy and help, you'll use me and you'll surely use your spirit-breathed word. And I do pray that you would also take the points of this message and I pray that you would help us to be proclaimers of your gospel and livers of your gospel. I pray that you give us the spiritual eyes to see the need around us including in this room. I pray that you'd give us the spiritual faith and hope to believe in what you intend to do. Oh God, I pray that you would send forth laborers into your harvest field. Into the harvest field of Linden and Fenton, Grand Blanc and the surrounding areas here. And you would send laborers to Cameroon and Iraq and the far and difficult places of the world. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I began four weeks ago. This is Missions Month, where we focus especially on our mission and especially our mission 
to take the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We call it missions or those that go missionaries. We have the marching orders of our Lord and Savior. And I began on the first Sunday of of October with a sermon called The Gracious Commission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, saith the Lord. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, namely, obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the ends of the earth or to the ends of the age. Who are you a disciple of? Are you a disciple of Jesus or someone else? Who do you follow and listen to or obey or trust or live for? Might be yourself or something else. Is it Jesus? Are you baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit? And do you live that out? Are you new based on what he has done for you? And have you pondered deeply what it means for these realities in your life. I want to talk to you this morning about this passage that we're going to, I'm going to read in just a second. A harvest of souls. Someday there will be a reaper who will come. I guess talking about reapers and grim reapers is a time of year in our culture to bring this up. But there is a time, the Bible speaks in ter- times, terms of a harvest. In Matthew 13, Jesus said there's going to be, there's a planting of of wheat, and the enemy comes and plants tares. The tares are unbelievers. The wheat is the good fruit, those who believe. And someday there's going to be a harvest, and there's going to be judgment at this harvest. And there's going to be reward at this harvest. There's going to be rejoicing and there is going to be sorrow and grief. That's one way of talking about harvest in the Bible. But then there's another type in which God says there is a harvest to be gathered. And that to be gathered is those souls that I am going to save and I'm going to bring in. Bringing in the sheaves. They're going to come in and be saved. And you need to go get them. I, I do the main work. I use you as laborers. Now go gather in the harvest. I'm the Lord of the harvest. I, wanna, I want us to think in those categories. The Lord of the harvest. I'm thankful that there are laborers in this harvest. Some 35, 40 years ago, it was... Pastor Dennis Walton in my life, who was faithfully preaching this book, teaching this book, preaching the gospel, and through the ministry of God's word, through a church as a little boy, growing up in a church, listening to the word of God, God was doing something in my mind, in my heart, and I'm praying God's going to do that in our young people in this church. Amen? And, And then my mom and dad, who just didn't stop talking about God and Jesus and what he's done for us in our need of salvation and our undes- how we're undeserving of that, yet he is merciful. He brought, they brought the gospel. They were laborers for the harvest. 
and my Sunday school teachers who would, with the flannel graph, shared story, Bible stories in the Old and the New Testament, but pointed me to Jesus through song and story. And by counselors in camp or speakers in camp that my parents sent me to on a regular basis to help that I live at a camp. Um, and, the, and then I look at the, the other laborers in the harvest field that led to my conversion. Well, I think my, to them, and so it was those missionaries that brought the gospel to the West that eventually led to this pastor, this person becoming saved and a church growing up and le- leading the Lord to other people, which eventually led to my grandparents coming to know the Lord. And of course, all the missionaries that brought the gospel to the regions that my grandparents were from in Europe. All these laborers are part of the mission of the church. The church is, labor, the church is about laborers for the Lord's harvest. I want, I want us to prayerfully think about that in regards to our families to who's in this room, who's in, who's in that house that you're going to gather during the holidays this Thanksgiving and then Christmas, who's on your street, neighborhood, who works with you or goes to school with you or is on a sports team with you. Look with me at Matthew 9.35. This, this is a passage at the very end of which Jesus has been going through, and now he's in Galilee. And he's been casting out demons and doing mighty miracles, raising the dead of a young lady. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Though we're not going to look there, you could turn to chapter 10 and you could continue on reading how he then sent out his 12 disciples, laborers into the harvest field. So if you were to divide up this passage, you might even have it on the screen here. I think we have slides on this. Here's how you would divide this passage up. Just, Just think of it in this terms. Jesus taught and proclaimed. Jesus saw the need. And had compassion, and Jesus told his disciples to pray for laborers. I guess we don't have that. Um, So three things in terms. Jesus taught and proclaimed. Jesus saw the need and had compassion. Jesus told his disciples to pray for laborers. We find that in verse 35. Then verse 36 is the need. And verse 37 and verse 38, he sees the disciples. He tells them to pray for laborers. And then chapter 10, they go out and start living this out. I have this this section. I just want to challenge us and say, Faith Church, look at these verses as your marching orders from your Lord and Savior, King Jesus. Do you know that Christ 
is your Lord and Master, and He calls the shots in our church and in our lives. This passage is not only part of our mission, but in many ways is fundamental, and if we ignore it, we are ignoring our Lord. And I would say if we ignore it, I mean us as a church corporately, as a congregation, as a thing, a group called Faith Church, but as individuals as well, if you call on him as Lord, and if we do not take these verses, real, if we don't take them serious enough to obey them, we are ignoring our Lord. Disciples who continue to ignore their Lord or Master prove to not be disciples at all. The word disciple, we are to make disciples, teaching all that he's commanded, teaching them to obey, baptizing in the name of the Father, and then bringing them into the body of Christ, the church, the congregation. But where do we get the disciples that we are to make? Well, I want to read this one more time. Jesus went through all the villages and cities teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. <coughs> then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I guess I want to give you four marching orders from this passage. I guess I just want to be faithful as a deliverer of God's message. Four charges to, to me as a pastor, senior pastor, the elders, leaders of the church, the deacons, the membership of the congregation, those that consider this your church, here are four things that I'd ask that you'd turn them into to prayer requests for us as a church, for you individually. I want to apply them to you as an individual and us as a congregation. And I, can, I am certain there are things that God is pleased for us to pray. And therefore, if we pray according to the will of God, we believe he will give. And so, oh, that God would give us a fulfilling of these prayer requests, these commands, these instructions, these marching orders for us today. So here they are, marching orders for this church, which includes if you, you, if you are a disciple, marching orders for you. Here's the first thing. We are to proclaim the gospel with our lives and our lips. We are to proclaim the gospel with our lives and our lips. Look at verse 35 again. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Look at that again. He was in the synagogues and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Would you say the gospel of the kingdom with me? The gospel of the kingdom. Do you know the gospel of the kingdom? And it says that he was healing every disease and every affliction. The whole New Testament is about taking the gospel of the kingdom and letting it run wild in the world. J.I. Packer wrote a little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus as king, and we take it and we share it 
We proclaim it. We are evangelizing. That happens when I'm going to do that. I'm doing that right now, and I'm going to do it very clearly in just a couple minutes. And it's when you, at your work, share in a conference room on a Bible study or just in a conversation, and you turn the conversation to Jesus, and you share the good news with him or with her, or you share it with your friend at school or your neighbor in the garden. Packer defines it evangelism as it is to present Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to sinful people in order that they may come to put their trust in God through Him, to receive Him as their Savior and serve Him as King in the fellowship of His church. The good news is that Jesus is King. He is a Savior King. He is the King that calls all people to repent and believe on Him. It is the Savior King who... In the New Testament, in Acts 17, it says that in times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We call it good news because it's good news that God broke through the mess of this world because it's become a mess because of our sin and all, everyone that has ever lived in this world other than His Son, Jesus. He came to rescue all who put their faith and trust in this Savior, King. Do you believe this? My challenge to you, whether you say, I'm an aspiring church leader. I, I'd love to be a, maybe even a pastor someday. I, I'd love to, I'd love, I, I feel like God's given me a desire and gifts to teach. You might be there. Or you might say, man, I just feel like an ordinary church member. And I don't, I feel like I have a real hard time sharing the truth with anybody. No matter where you are, God wants you to learn to proclaim and to live this gospel. So what is this gospel? Here's a gospel. Here's I came across this week. Here's a 60-second version of the gospel. Would you please listen up for two reasons? One, so you can learn it, so that you know it better, so you can share it, because that's part of our marching orders. Second, I really believe you could be saved right now when I share this gospel. I really believe it. You could, you could enter the kingdom of his dear son, from darkness, because this gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Here it is. God made everything out of nothing, including you and me. His main purpose in creation was to bring him pleasure. And the chief way in which all of us do this is through loving, obeying, and enjoying him perfectly. But instead of this, we sinned against our loving creator and acted in high-handed rebellion and God, had, God had vowed, has vowed that He will righteously and lovingly judge sinners with eternal death. But God being merciful and loving and gracious and just sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of man to live as a man, fulfilling His perfect requirements in the place of sinners, loving, obeying, and enjoying Him perfectly. And further... 
His son, Jesus, bore the eternal judgment of God upon the cross of Calvary, and he satisfied the eternal anger of God. Standing in the place of sinners, God treated Jesus as a sinner, though he was perfectly sinless, that he might declare sinners to be perfect. This glorious transaction occurs as the sinner puts their faith their dependence, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be their substitute. God then charges Christ's perfection to us sinners and no longer views us as enemies, but instead as adopted sons covered in the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And God furnished proof that this sacrifice was accepted was that he raised Jesus from the dead. God will judge the world in all righteousness and all those who are not covered in the righteousness of Christ, depending on him for forgiveness, they will be forced to stand before God in his judgment and his eternal anger on their own. A place we could never, ever be and be okay. Therefore, all must turn from sin and receive Christ Jesus, our Lord. Faith Church, I hope we will know this. Study it more than you study anything else. Not not just a simple four or five point outline so you could just say it to somebody so they can go through a form. Know it deeply in your bones, in your heart. This is the good news that that frees us from our sin. It's the good news when we've been struggling with our own failures, we get on our knees and go, thank God he saved somebody like me. That's the kind of parent that has any ability to walk through the challenges of parenting. And that's the only Glue that can hold marriages together. And it is the only thing that can hold up to the hope and the dangers and the pressures of life is the beauty of the gospel, the good news that we sinners, undeserved, had a rescuing God who sent His Son to be our substitute. And we have to proclaim it. We have to proclaim it to our children, and we have to proclaim it to our young people, and we have to proclaim it to our wayward children, and we have to proclaim it to our neighbors, and we have to proclaim it to our distant family members, and we have to proclaim it to the person that we have met at a coffee shop, or we have, we just grow to say, I, I want them to, and mercifully saved me. I bring all this as, as you read this ver- these four verses, it's a story of Jesus going to proclaim the gospel. And, and we, as followers of Jesus, need to go, Jesus did that, i got to do that too. And not just be, this gospel you're going to take to the ends of the wor- world. That's why Paul and the apostles says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek we are to take and love that gospel. And I'm going to say, we are to, we are to proclaim it with our lives and our lips. Now, Jesus did this. He proclaimed the gospel, and then he demonstrated how powerful that gospel is by 
someone that was blind that came up to him and he touched him and they no, no longer were blind. Somebody was demon-possessed, out of control. Everybody knew it. He could touch him or talk to him or cast out the demon. And he was a completely sane and transformed guy or gal. And everyone said, that message of good news or that he, the king is come, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah is actually here, it's real. Those miracles were proof that his message was real. Now, most of us are not going to go around in our lives casting out demons or praying for blind people and seeing them no longer blind. I'm not saying it can't happen, and God doesn't do that. He does. But that is not the ordinary way, and you and I are going to do it in order to demonstrate the validity of the gospel. But I just want to appeal to you one way. Your lives, do they demonstrate that the gospel is real? Oh, I pray that if you would look and, and confess to the Lord that, oh, far too often I, I proclaim a gospel of God's goodness and grace, and yet my kids or my neighbors or my coworkers or my school, those that I go to school with, they don't see a radical difference in my life. They don't see the love of Jesus. They don't see the holiness of Jesus. They don't see the faithfulness of Jesus. They don't see a humility coming out, a joy coming out. Oh God, please help me to proclaim and actually prove it with my, with my living. Proclaim and live. So here's my, I want to apply this and then move to the next point. Would you, as a church, proclaim the gospel with your lives and your lips. I've already mostly applied it to how you're to do it in your life individually. You need to start to learn the gospel if you don't know it. Ask for help. Read good books on it. I'd love to show you and point you to some. So would others in this, this building. But here's a challenge. And will you also do this as a church? When you give to this church, when you give to the missions, when you give to the congregation, the general fund, when you show up on Sunday mornings, when you pray for me or whoever's preaching, we normally have a sermon card and you can look at the four months ahead and see who's preaching. And would you pray? When you pray, when you come, when you invite, when you prepare your own hearts, when you challenge your family to do the same, you're participating in the proclaiming of the gospel as a body. My intention every Sunday is for if an unbeliever's here, they're going to at least hear a crystal clear explanation and invitation of the gospel. So would you pray for me? That's my intention. And would you come anticipating? And I believe God will do more through your faithful attending, praying, inviting, encouraging and preparing of your own hearts if we all do that together. That's my first exhortation from verse 35. Now let's move to verse 36. Here's the second one. First is proclaim the gospel with our lives and lips. Number two, see compassionately the desperate need around us. See compassionately the desperate need around us. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
I think we could see there was three things that moved Jesus. It was the size, the condition, and the separation. The size, the crowds were there. They were, they were mobbing him. In Galilee, there's record that there might have been two to three million people that lived in the, the Galilean seas, um, countryside. That's a lot of people. And they were, maybe there was tens of thousands. I mean, that's a lot. And he looked at them. And Jesus had the ability to see their need like no one was able to see their need. And he saw that they were harassed and helpless. This is a picture of a sheep that has wolves there, and they are just like laying over, surrendering to the death of this predator. And he sees them desperately in need And it says, without a shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the true shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for my sheep. There's the gospel. There's the good news that we proclaim. He says, I I lay my life down. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I lead them into good pasture. Jesus came to meet this need, but he saw the need. And I think for us as disciples of Jesus who are called to follow him, we see verse 36 and we go, just like 35 we go, he preached the gospel, well, so am I. I got to figure this out. I got to preach the gospel. I need to love the gospel. I need to proclaim it. Here I, I need to see like Jesus saw. Do you see like Jesus sees? Jesus saw people and he didn't see Boy, they are a headache for me today. I am tired, and this crowd is getting out of control. He saw sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved to compassion. Really, it's the idea. He was agonized within. I read this this week. Some professing Christians would rather skip all the unseemly bits about eternal judgment at the hands of a wrathful God. In the midst of, in, in the mildest forms, these Christians are uncomfortable about the teaching of hell. They don't deny it. They simply wish it wasn't there. It's the most, in its most strident form, these Christians may reject the doctrine of hell altogether as unworthy of a loving God and perhaps a throwback to a less enlightened age. But what if we believe what we say we believe about this book and its inspiration and inerrancy? Then from Moses to the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry to the concluding series and scenes of Revelation, the Bible confronts us with the harrowing truth that hell is real, souls, and it lasts forever. It's almost too much to think about. How many millions and millions of souls now suffer God's just punishment of rebellion, sin? Christianity isn't made acceptable by removing thoughts of hell. Christianity is made urgently beautiful by properly considering the reality of hell. Because time is short. For some estimates, how many will depart this life into a Christless eternity before you finish this sermon today? Well, I don't know. But some estimate that 55.3 million people die each year. That means 151,600 people die on this planet each day. 
6,316 people die every hour, and 105 people die each minute. And the mortality rate is 100%. Means, while I was reading that statistics, 105 people enter eternity. The question is, is do we see the need? And I I guess I want to say, God, would you help us? I think we see some, but we don't see. God, would you help us to see the need around us? Our greatest need always is God. Our greatest need is not to get out of our sickness, though we should pray for healing. It is not to be in a financial secure place, though it is okay to ask for provision. It is not to have our trials and afflictions taken away. That's not our greatest need, though we sh- God invites us to pray for help and deliverance. Our greatest need is that our hearts, our lives are reunited spiritually to God that has been divided or cut off because of our sin. And only the gospel can bring us back to God. And oh, that we would look at the people at our work that annoy us. The people in our neighborhood that are the most frustrating. That the people that cut you off on the highway and you really want to act like a non-Christian at the moment. The people that you consider the most difficult or that look so different than you or are frustrating to you, the people in Linden, the people in Fenton, in Grand Blanc, in Flint Township, and in all of Flint, people in Detroit, the people in your workplace and in your school and on your street, how do you view them? According to this world, or do you, or according to that, there's going to be another world, and there's going to be a judgment. How do you view your children? Do you know they have been redeemed? Do you know that they've been given spiritual life, and that they believe and they're saved, and God is at work in their life? Do you agonize over them in your prayers to God? Is there? Are you moved with compassion, with a desire to say, I long for the world around me that doesn't have what you, God, has give, you've given me. They don't have you yet to know them. It is moments like this where a Brian and Heather McFell Fossey, they saw the multitudes and said, we got to go. We got to quit our job here in Michigan our comfortable life with our kids here in church, and we're going to go and disrupt the, next, the healthiest next 20 years of our lives, 30 years of our lives, and we're going to spend a lot of it in hard parts of the world or traveling, but not in a comfortable, stable place because we have compassion because we see them without a shepherd. And because... We got, a, we got marching orders to take the gospel. I just pray that, would, would you pray with me? This is not about one sermon pep talk. 
Would you make it a regular prayer that we as a, a people would not sit on the treasures of this gospel, get all filled up with a lot of Bible knowledge and doctrine and theology, which we should, but that's all. But that we would, we would see those around us and we'd really live like Christians. And as Christians, we have to open our mouths and share the good news. And, and, and that's going to look different for everybody. For some of you, you're not wired to communicate in the same way as others, and that's okay, but God's going to give you opportunities to be part of that, that mission, part of that work, including through your prayers, in your hospitality, in your serving together with a church body. Okay, so marching order number two is let us all as a church Make it a prayer, oh God, help me to see spiritually like you wanted me to see, like Jesus saw. Help, help me to see my kids. Parents, we are to disciple our children. We are to call them to follow Jesus. Help me to see my neighbors and my classmates, my, my co-workers, the people around me that do not know the Lord, all of them, with the, the heart that you want me to have. Here's a third one. Believe confidently Jesus' words about the plentiful harvest. Would you look at verse 37? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Now, now this is a prelude to the next verse that we're going to get when he says, so therefore pray the Lord of the harvest. But I want us to ponder Jesus' words as disciples. We're his disciples. Verse 37, what does that teach us disciples? Our master said, the harvest is plentiful. I know he said it to his disciples back then. I just have to believe it's still true. I have to believe that because he is Lord of heaven on earth, all authority has been given to him, Matthew 28. And he said, go make disciples, that the harvest is still plentiful and the labors are few. And my point here is, let's believe confidently that these things are true. What if you have a mindset of, Okay, all these people in my neighborhood, I, I'm going I'm to look at them through the lenses of Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. So I'm, why would I not think that God doesn't intend to still do a work, a mighty work in my name? And why would he, he, it would just be like him to use somebody as insignificant as me and you. That's just how he works. So I'm going to have confidence that as I, as I muster up the courage, because it sometimes is scary if you haven't done it much, to share the gospel or build relationships for the gospel, praying, oh God, give me heart to see them rightly. This passage, just, this verse, I just want to appeal to you. Believe what Jesus says here. The harvest is plentiful. God intends to bring salvation. He gave this, these marching orders to 12 disciples who then spread it out and through the book of Acts, it was like a wildfire out of control because God said, the harvest is plentiful, now go get them. The harvest is plentiful in, parts of, in all parts of the world, now go gather them. The harvest is plentiful. God has got a harvest in Flint. He's got a harvest in Linden in Schwartz Creek. He has a harvest in Fenton and Argentine and Byron and Duran. He's got a harvest. Now go believe that as you act on these other things. And here's the last point. 
Look at verse 38. The last point is marching order number four, pray earnestly for laborers for the harvest. Pray earnestly for laborers of the harvest. It's very interesting what Jesus says. He doesn't say, the laborers are few, now go be a laborer. He didn't even say, now go recruit laborers. Both of which he would want the disciples to do. But instead, what does he say? Pray earnestly. So we as a church, if we're going to be obedient disciples, need to do what Jesus told us to do. So are we praying for, the, for laborers to come from our church? I think there's two ways in which I think of when I think of we are to pray earnestly that he would provide, he would bring forth laborers in this church. One is the, what we often think about the missionary call that I do pray that some of these boys right here will spend most of their life in another part of the world sharing the gospel and planting churches. And, and I don't, I'm not picking on the boys here. Um, God might be, and I hope he does. But, but some of you who are in an established career may hear that call, and you're going to go, I can't help it. I, I couldn't do otherwise. I got to go. That's one way, God, let's pray. And if we pray, we're going to see that happen, and we need to be prepared to go. That's better than the comfort of several more decades of the American dream with your family near you. The, the second way is to pray. When we pray, God, would you, we pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, would you send laborers into the harvest? I think what that's going to mean is you and me as members of this church and whoever God brings else into the membership here, he's going to just put an internal fire, a, a, a a greater intensity of obedience to say, I am a laborer. I, I, I view my street as a harvest field and my work as a harvest field and this running club is a harvest field and this whatever it is as a harvest field. This is a harvest field and my life is, exists in part to roll up my sleeves and gather the harvest because the Lord of the harvest said the harvest is plentiful and boy, with the eyes he's giving me, I see that there's, they're sheep without a shepherd, and oh, he brought me to the shepherd of my soul in the gospel, so I got to open my mouth, and I got I to gotta proclaim it. Let us as a church pray the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send forth laborers. Laborers to Flint and Fenton, to Linden and to Holly, and to the uttermost parts of the world to Africa and the Middle East, and to the most difficult places. And I wonder if someone was praying for the young Adoniram Judson in the early 1800s. Do you know who he is, Adoniram Judson? You might not. He was the first American missionary sent to another part of the world. He was born in the late 1700s, and in the early 1800s, he was converted as a young man and grew up in a Christian home. He was a bright, educated man. His parents wanted high, higher things than being a missionary. He's educated. He can go far in America, this new country. It's recently become a nation. Don't throw yourself away, your life away in the backwards parts of the world. But he heard the call. He saw the crowds and he had compassion. 
And he and about five other companions made a plan to go to China or India, somewhere in the east. He ended up in Burma or Myanmar. He met a gal shortly before leaving while he was preparing to go. This is early 1800s. Transportation is not great. Medicine's even worse. He met a gal named Anne around the time and asked her father's permission to marry her. Fathers of daughters, could you imagine getting this kind of proposal letter or can I marry your daughter letter? Well, this man did. This is what this aspiring missionary wrote to his, the love of his life's father. I have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. End a letter. He said yes. And they went... And he never saw his daughter. Was planning to save a lot of sinners in the east as he promised he would. Judson was confident and he went in the confidence of the gospel. And he labored almost 40 years in Burma. Despite being told in his way that Burma was unreachable to Christian evangelism. Waiting years before he saw any conversion. Enduring... 17 different years of imprisonment and many other hardship, including a long life battle of 108 degree heat with cholera, malaria, dysentery, unknown miseries that would take two of Judson's wives. So this wife, and then he got remarried and she died because of sickness. Seven of his 13 children dying over there and colleague after colleague dying. It was, it was his goal in the course of his life for a single church, a light, and maybe a hundred people. Before he died, he had translated the Bible into Burmese language and a, most of a dictionary for them. Over a hundred churches had been planted, over 8,000 believers. Now there is a massive, massive evangelical presence in the midst of a Buddhist stronghold in Myanmar. Asia. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. They're without a shepherd. The gospel says there is a shepherd. Proclaim it. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would obey these marching orders. God, I pray for the three that will be baptized now in your name.
God, I pray that they would be laborers, whether that be laborers with the church here or being sent from the church someday. God, I pray, Father, that you would, you would hear us and you would, you would help us to proclaim the gospel with our lives and lips and that we would see compassionately and desperately the need around us and that we would believe confidently the words about your harvest. And I pray that we would earnestly pray the Lord of the harvest, you would send laborers. So, Father, please send laborers. Help us to be earnest in this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.